Why do people make the choices that they make? Do you ever find yourself wondering that? I mean, that's an interesting just thing to study in general, what motivates people, why they choose what they choose. But sometimes you're looking at specific choices and asking why. For instance, my parents once owned a house that was pink. Like the entire exterior of the house was painted pink. It was a pink house. I don't know if you've ever been to Texas and seen that restaurant. They have their taco cabana. It looked just like that, right? Just a pink house. I had so many questions, right? Why is it this way? And my, I guess my questions weren't so much even for my parents. It's like, why is this house the way that it is? And I look around the neighborhood and the next house is like this canary yellow, and the next house is like this pastel green. It's clearly something that the HOA like was going for. And, and I mean, all these houses were up even on this hill, so you could see them for miles, and I'm just there. Why? Why a pink house on a hill? It didn't quite make sense to me. Or I, I think about when we look at family pictures with my family and my brother, Bill, we, we look at some of the things that he was wearing as a kid, and we say, Bill, why? Like, why did you choose, you know, the, the stripes and the pattern? Like, what, what, what were you thinking? And that's where he tries to turn it on my parents and say, well, why'd you let me out of the house like this? And they're like, hey, you were old enough to make your own decisions at that point. You, you got to deal with the consequences. Now, we wonder why, why are these choices made? And we all make choices every single day. Some big choices, some little choices. But we make these decisions. But sometimes you just see a choice that you just scratch your head. What in the world were they thinking? Well, today we're going to look at some choices that were made, some responses that were made. And with the benefit of history and the benefit of having the whole Bible, we scratch our heads and we say, why? Why would these people make these decisions? And I want us, I think the Bible is going to give us some insight into why people made some pretty terrible decisions that we're going to read about today. And it's going to be important for us to learn so we don't repeat the same mistakes that were made 2,000 years ago. So I want you to take your Bible and open them up to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. And the choices that we're going to see, everything that happens today is all in response, not just to Jesus in general, but here it's even more specific. Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. Okay? And now we're going to see how did people respond to that uh, kind of Jesus' biggest miracle that he has done yet in the Gospel of John. What are people going to think? And to see a variety of reactions, we're going to go all the way from John eleven forty five 45, into chapter 12, verse 11. And I'm just going to start by reading the first kind of paragraph there, verses 45 through 53 in John 11. So follow along as I read. It says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, raising Lazarus from the dead, believed in him. But some of them went back to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, 
Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him, to put Jesus to death. So right there, from the beginning of that passage, we see, as usual, when Jesus does something or when Jesus says something, there is a divided response. Some people believe, Jesus even said that's why he's doing this miracle, so that people would believe. But some, and the way this is phrased is kind of, it's put kind of opposite those who believed. It seems that this is kind of a negative reaction. Some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Kind of get the idea, these people were snitches, right? Hey, I'm going to go tell the Pharisees about what Jesus, you know, that sketchy thing that Jesus did by raising somebody from the dead. And so the Pharisees, they get the chief priests, they get the whole council, which would have been known as the Sanhedrin, which would have had the Pharisees, another group called the, the Sadducees, kind of a representation of some of the local religious leaders, as well as those that really controlled things that were going on in Jerusalem. They all get together and they have this concern saying, hey, we got to do something about this Jesus guy. He's a problem because if we just keep letting him do what he's doing, it's going to be a big deal. Look what they say in verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What does that mean? What's their concern about? Well, they're concerned if too many people follow Jesus and there's this uprising, the big bad Romans are going to come in and take away our place, which that specific phrase, when it's used throughout the Gospels and the Scripture, it seems that it's talking about a specific place. It's talking about the temple. They're going to come and they're going to take away the temple and our nation. And even though the Jews were living under the rule of the Roman Empire, there was some element of freedom and autonomy that they had. I mean, this Sanhedrin still had a lot of power in Jerusalem. They had a status quo that they were somewhat okay with. So what's going on here? Is this from the Sanhedrin, is this kind of like, hey, patriotic altruism? You know, hey, we got to defend our, our nation from this threat. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think it's something a lot simpler. I think what's going on here is selfish concern. The, the, the Sanhedrin, they're kind of at the top of the food chain there in ancient Israel. And even though the Romans are there, they still have enough freedom to do their thing. And they're not really concerned about the nation as a whole. They're concerned about their place in the nation. And they want to stay right where they are. And they're afraid that what Jesus is doing is going to upset that. And so in this moment, instead of honoring Jesus as the Messiah, they want to kill him because it's not lining up with their selfish interests. Let's put this down for point number one. If you're taking notes, you want to take out your note sheet and jot this down. Don't let selfish interests keep you from the Savior. Don't let selfish interests keep you from the Savior. And let's just back up for some perspective here. Just before this, Jesus has raised somebody from the dead. And the news of it is spreading all over 
Jerusalem. And literally, from where the Sanhedrin was likely meeting, down at the southern end of the Temple Mount, you could look out and see the Mount of Olives. And it was just over the crest of that hill where the town of Bethany was, where Jesus raised Lazarus. They can look out almost and see where it happened. Jesus has risen somebody from the dead right in their backyard. This is amazing stuff. And instead of them saying, can you believe it? The Messiah is finally here. They say, this guy's a problem. Let's kill him. That's the summary of what happens here. You see what they say in verse 53. They made plans to put him to death. Came across a good quote, just summarizing these people and their unbelief. And it says, the chief cause of unbelief is not inadequate information, but a heart in rebellion against the authority of God and his word. At this point, if you go back and we review John chapters 1 through 11, there's not really anything more Jesus could have done in either what he said or what he did to prove who he was. There is no more information that could possibly be given to this council of religious leaders. The problem is they are in rebellion against God and his word. I find it really interesting. Jesus tells a parable in Luke chapter 16. And it's, I think, rare occurrence where Jesus actually names one of the characters in the parable. It's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. He tells the story of a rich man that doesn't have a name in the story. And this poor man named Lazarus. And in the story that Jesus tells, they both die. And Lazarus goes to heaven, and the rich man goes to hell. And and Lazarus, he's sitting right next to Abraham in heaven. And and Lazarus, Abraham, and this rich man, they have this kind of, they have this conversation. And at the end of the conversation, the rich man asks Abraham, he says, Abraham, would you send Lazarus back from the dead so he can go and warn my brothers so they don't end up here with me? And do you remember what Abraham says to the rich man? He says, you have Moses and the prophets. If you don't believe Moses and the prophets, basically, then even if I raise Lazarus from the dead, they're still not going to believe. And here we are, John chapter 11. Guess what's happened? A guy named Lazarus has been raised from the dead. But guess what what was true? If they weren't going to believe Moses and the prophets, and even now you can add to that, if they weren't going to believe the Messiah himself telling it to them, then even a, a man raised from the dead is not going to be enough to convince them because the problem is not lack of information. It's, it's selfishness. They want what they want. And we read about Caiaphas here, who was the high priest that year. We know from history, he was the high priest for 18 years. And he was a from what we gather, a pretty nasty guy. Not someone you would want to be the religious leader of your country. In fact, the whole group of the Sadducees were not known for how kind they were. They were known for how brutal they could be. And even look at at how condescending he is, even as he talks. And he says, you know nothing at all, in verse 49. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He speaks in this condescending way saying, guys, no, we just need to kill Jesus. And he tries to make it sound good. Like, hey, we're defending the nation. Instead of the whole nation perishing, we're just going to kill one guy. And so they make this, they all listen to him and they say, hmm, that's that's a good word, Caiaphas. 
and they go along with it. And it doesn't seem like this was really even private. Look at the next section, the end of chapter 11, starting in verse 54. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region of, near the wilderness, a town called Ephraim, and there stayed with his disciples. So it even links, Jesus kind of goes into secret because of this. That somehow word got to, to Jesus. It wasn't a secret what they wanted to do to Jesus. So Jesus goes more into seclusion with his disciples. In verse 55, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. This was one of the major holidays where thousands of people would, would make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover when they remembered being delivered from Egypt. And they were coming up to Jerusalem to purify themselves. They wanted to go through all the rituals to make sure they were clean and ready to participate in the celebration. Verse 56, they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all, right? Even it, it seems that word is out. It will, the Pharisees, they want to they kill Jesus. Is Jesus going to come at all? Verse 57, now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Yeah, I mean, it seems very public. The word is out. Hey, if you know where Jesus is, tell us so we can arrest him. The stage is kind of set for this final showdown. All because these religious leaders, instead of worshiping the Messiah as they should, they're dominated with their concern about themselves and their own power and their own place. Chapter 12, we see another sad example. First, there's a good example we're going to come back to, but look at chapter 12. It says six days before the Passover. So while all people are gathering and all this conversation is going on, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And that's how people should have responded to Jesus. And we're going to come back to that. But we're going to see another negative example, another scratching our head. Why was this choice made? Starting in verse 4. But Judas, Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, and you already knew that, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always will have with you, but, do not, but you do not always have me. So we see Judas responding and even being rebuked. And then we see more of just the response. Verse 9, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came just over the hill, not only on account of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. I mean, that's something you don't get to see every day, right? So they're going to see. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And you see the chief priest, this has to be stopped. If we have to kill Jesus, fine. If we have to kill Lazarus, fine. They're so consumed with their own desires. But then that's, that's kind of what we see for Judas here too. 
Oh, sure, he has an excuse. He makes it sound good too. Hey, let's give this money to the poor. But it makes it clear, apparently he was like the treasurer of the 12 disciples, so he carried the money bag, and he was taking whatever he wanted. And that's what he wanted to do here. But Jesus rebukes him. It's actually interesting. We read what looks to be the same story in Mark and in Matthew. They record this story of uh, the anointing of Jesus' feet that doesn't really include as many of the names. But one of the disciples, so now doesn't say in the other Gospels, but we know from here it's Judas, says the same thing. Why wasn't this sold and given to the poor? And Jesus says the same thing in response. And in Mark 14, 10 and 11, it actually links this, that it's right after this happens that Judas goes and talks to the religious leaders and makes a deal and sells out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So we, we look at Judas and we think about this. It's clear he wants something. Sure, he's following Christ, but he's not following Christ because he's so in love with Jesus. He's following Christ because of what's in it for him. And it seems like one of the things he really wants is money. And maybe he does think Jesus is going to be some big political leader that's going to give him power. And once he realizes that's not the way this is going, he's out. And he's going to find out what can give him money and power. And he's going to sell out Jesus to the religious authorities. So we've got the religious leaders. We've got Judas. And they're making these choices to reject the Messiah. And here you're sitting in church and it's easy for us to say, wow, that was a bad choice. But why did they make it? Why did they make that choice? And we can see all of them, they wanted what they wanted. And that was the most important thing to them. There was something they wanted that was more important to them than the Messiah. To put it another way, there was something that they wanted that was more important to them than God. We have a word to describe that. It's called idolatry. That was the problem. And and no, no, they didn't have some shrine and some statue that they were bowing down to. But they were breaking the most important commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Sure, yeah, that includes Baal and these other things that we see in the Old Testament. But we as Christians should understand that includes money. That includes power. That includes pleasure. So many other things. And even what Jesus called the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There was clearly something all of these people loved a lot more than they loved God. Because if they would have loved God, they would have recognized the Messiah for who he was. But no, their idols controlled them. They wanted power. They wanted money. They wanted maybe some combination of the two. And that's where we need to start seeing the connections. That's not a 2,000 years ago problem. Those same reasons are keeping people from Christ today. And some of you, you might be here like Judas because you're following Jesus, but you're here for something else. And as soon as you realize Jesus isn't going to give you what you want, you're going to be gone because you're not here for him. There's an idol in your heart that's more important than God. And one interesting note we should see from, even from this passage is that idols cannot deliver what they promise. Maybe for a little while, but it never ends well. The the religious leaders are so concerned about the Romans coming and taking away our place and our nation. Guess what happens? The Romans come and they take away their place and their nation. The thing that they're so afraid of and willing to kill Jesus to protect, well, they kill Jesus and they lose it anyways. 
as in 70 AD, the temple is completely destroyed. They don't have the autonomy ever again that they had. Not, for, not until 1948, right? Their, their place in their nation was taken away. Well, how does money turn out for Judas? Judas sells out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And then he retires to the countryside in a villa and lives happily ever after. Is that how the story goes? No. Did that money that Judas wanted so bad satisfy him? No. He was so tortured by what he had done. He tries to give the money back when they won't take it back. He throws it into the temple and he goes and he hangs himself. The things that people give up Jesus for never deliver. They always disappoint in the end. But these people, they don't, they don't see that yet. And they don't understand what Jesus has taught all throughout the Gospels. We'll get to it in a couple weeks, but look down at verse 25. It's a familiar phrase that Jesus uses several places in the Gospels. This idea, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The, the, the religious leaders, they loved their life. They wanted to preserve what they thought they had, and they're going to end up losing it. Same, same with, with Judas. If you cling to what you've already got, you're going to lose it all. But if you're willing to lose it all for Christ, you'll gain everything. And sure, they have their excuses. It's for the nation. It's Judas. It's for charity, right? They have excuses to try to make it sound good, but really it's about themselves. And not only is it about their idols and whatever it is that they really want, I think another problem here is what they want is control. They want control. And even the, the, the religious leaders, they had a decent amount of control. Despite the Romans, they kind of had worked out a, a nice status quo situation with the Romans, a little live and let live. That, hey, if they, didn't, if they didn't bug them, the Romans wouldn't bug them doing their thing, which allowed them to still have a lot of power. And you can tell they don't like Jesus and the crowd running after him because that feels out of control to them. They don't like what they can't control. They want to keep control on it. Well, here's another thing that they needed to realize. Another thing that people need to realize today, they never had control to begin with. Look again. These are, these are two amazing verses, verse 51 and 52 of chapter 11. After Caiaphas gives his wisdom, hey, let's just kill him and save the nation. We're told basically that this was a, an unwitting prophecy, so to speak. That Caiaphas spoke better than he knew. Because Jesus was going to die for the nation. It says there at the end of verse 51. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So yes, Jesus was going to die so that Israel could be saved, and not just Israel, but all who would turn from their sin and put their faith in Christ. Caiaphas is scheming to keep control and coming up with his plan. What he doesn't know is he's, without even realizing it, fulfilling God's plan to save Israel, to save the world. Caiaphas never had control to begin with. God was always in control, and everything was going into his plan. So are you afraid to give up your life to Christ because you're afraid, oh, I don't want to give up control and, and give that over to Christ? Well, newsflash for you. Christ is in control already. The only choice is, are you going to acknowledge that or not? Because some of these same mistakes that led these people to make these decisions 2,000 years ago happen all the time 
right here in the Treasure Valley. It's probably true of some people sitting right here at this school today. Yeah, maybe you're not opposed to Jesus, but at the end of the day, you want what you want. And at the end of the day, you want control. And until you're willing to relinquish those things, you're never going to truly know Christ. And unless you relinquish those things, someday you're going to reach a fork in the road where it's going to be what you want or Christ. And if your heart is set on what you want, I know what you're going to choose. And you're going to turn your back on Christ for something that can never fulfill, for an illusion of control that you will never have. We don't want to make the same mistakes of the religious leaders and of Judas. The route of selfishness selfishness will not work. It leads to destruction. But thankfully, there's another example. It's one of the reasons why we're doing so much today. So this wasn't, you know, a huge downer message on, hey, these people wanted to kill Jesus. Go have a nice Sunday, right? We see in the middle of this, this example of, of Mary. And Jesus comes back to Bethany, and it's kind of, kind of a unique scene. I don't know if you've ever been to a retirement dinner or, uh, you know, an anniversary party or an awards ceremony to honor someone who has won something. I don't think any of us have ever been to a resurrection dinner, right? Where, hey, Lazarus is raised from the dead. Jesus is back in town. Let's throw a dinner. Let's honor Christ by, you know, throwing a party because he raised our brother from the dead. And that seems to be what's going on here. In the beginning of chapter 12, and Martha, Lazarus' sister, she's serving the meal. Lazarus, he's one of the guests of honor. I mean, hey, he he was dead, and now he's alive. That's pretty cool. He's there seated with Christ at the table. And then we read about what Mary does. She takes a pound of expensive ointment from pure nard, and she anoints the feet of Jesus. And what we read in the other Gospels, it seems that she points, pours it on his head, pours it on his feet. She's wiping the feet of Jesus uh, with her hair. You know, this is an extravagant gift. And even as it describes this ointment and talks about how it was made, it seems from what we knew about those materials, it was probably something that came from like northern India, which isn't exactly right next door to Israel. So this is expensive. This is valuable. Judas it says it could have been sold for 300 denarii. A denarius was one day's wage for a worker in Israel. So 300 of those, once you factor in Sabbaths and holidays, that's like a year's wages for somebody. Now, let's think about that in modern terms. Imagine if somebody came and broke open a, a bottle of perfume or ointment that cost $30,000. You'd be like, yikes, how can 12 ounces of liquid be worth that much, Right? And you think that this was a crazy, extravagant gift poured on Jesus' head, poured on his feet, wiping his feet with her hair. What in the world is going on here? I think that's a pretty fair question, right? What is going on here? Well, Jesus just raised Lazarus from the dead. That's Mary's brother. Her brother was dead. He'd been in the tomb for four days, and now he's sitting at the table eating. Don't you think Mary's maybe a little thankful for that? And more than that, it seems that she has come and seen, she's one of the ones who believes. She knows Jesus is not just somebody that did something really nice. He is the Messiah. And she is ready to acknowledge that. And in doing this, while it might not make the most sense to us, she's trying to offer something to express gratitude that is impossible to put into words. It's an extravagant act of worship. She's doing it because she thinks the person that she's giving the gift to is worth it and is valuable. 
And if you think, I don't know, pouring out this ointment, that doesn't make a ton of sense. Well, let me ask you some questions. Have you ever been in love? Has that ever motivated you to buy some things, maybe even spend a good amount of money on something that when you step back and look at it, you're like, I don't, does that make a lot of sense? Have you ever bought flowers for somebody you cared about? I mean, is that, when you really think about it, the most practical thing that, that you can do, right? That they're going to sit there on a counter and die a slow death, right? <laughs> but you, you might even spend a lot of money on those flowers because they look nice and they smell nice. Might not be the most practical thing, but you're willing to do something because you love somebody. Or have you ever bought a, a shiny metallic round object called a ring? Have you ever bought that for somebody? Remember when I bought the engagement ring for my wife, that was probably at that time in my life, the most money I'd ever spent on anything. I mean, how practical of a gift is that? Does it make her, you know, sleep better? Does it make food taste better for her, help her drive safer, help her do the things she needs to do? Does it help her out at all during the day? Not really, but it was expensive, at least for me at the, at the time, right? Why do we do those things? Is it because we think the flowers are so valuable? Is it because we think the ring is so valuable? No, it's because we think the person is so valuable. We think that the person is worthy of the gift. We think that the person is worth it. And I think that's the simplest way to understand what Mary is doing. She's trying to say, Jesus, you're worthy. Even though that ointment might have been the most valuable thing that Mary owned, She's trying to just express some way, Jesus, you're more valuable even than that. You're the most valuable thing that there, that there is. And, and as we think about how we should respond in worship to Christ, that's the same heart. So point number two, this is what we want to do. Act like Jesus is the greatest treasure in the world. Even in the video we showed earlier, that's what we want everyone in the Treasure Valley and all over the world to know, is that there is no treasure like Jesus. Well, we need to, if we want people to believe that, guess what? We need to act like it. Our lives need to show that we really think Jesus is worthy with how we lived. And God uses this heartfelt expression of gratitude. You might say it doesn't make sense. But Jesus says, actually, it makes more sense than you think. Because Jesus knows he's about to die. And so her gift actually did do something good. It anointed his, his body for burial. That's what he explains there in verse 7. And God can use our worship to do, I think, more than we realize. I mean, you can't go pour ointment, expensive perfume, on Jesus' feet today. But you can have this same heart that Mary had. That there is no treasure like Jesus. That he is the most valuable person in the world. And why should we feel the way that Mary felt? Well, because things should actually be closer to home and more on our hearts even than they were on Mary's. Mary, her brother, had been dead but was alive again. Well, if you are a Christian, if you've turned from your sin and put your faith in Christ, it's not your brother who was dead and alive again. It's you. Ephesians chapter 2 reminds us, but you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were just floating down the river of our culture, doing what the world wants, doing what the devil wants, and you were a child of wrath. That's how the Bible describes unsaved people. 
But God, it says, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, raised us up to be with Christ. It raised us up in Christ to live a new life. And in the ages to come, he's going to show us the immeasurable riches of his glory and of his grace in Christ Jesus. So no, it's not your brother that was dead. It was you. And now you are alive. And now you have a future. And why do you have all that? All because of Jesus. Zero percent because of you and how special you are or how good you were. No, all because of the grace and mercy of Christ. Don't you start to see what Mary did as more and more logical when you think about it that way? Don't you see worship as a logical response? And as we think about what that should look like, there's one phrase at the end of verse 13 that I want us to think about. As it describes what, sorry, at the end of verse 3 of chapter 12, as it describes what Mary did, the last phrase that says about it is that the whole house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. What she had done had changed the nature of the whole house. I woke up one day last week. I woke up in bed and I sniffed a little bit and I could realize I was smelling the unmistakable scent of bacon, right? And even though I was upstairs, literally still in my bed, my wife was downstairs cooking breakfast and the whole house was filled with the aroma of bacon. And that's when I knew it was going to be a good day. And it was, right? And what she was doing filled the whole house. I want us to think about that image when it comes to our lives. That the worship we should be offering to Christ with our lives, there should be a fragrance. There should be an aroma to it. The whole house should be filled with our heart's gratitude for Christ. I want you to think about the people closest to you. The people you rub shoulders with. The people that you live with. Your family, your coworkers, your friends, right? When they get a sniff of your life, do they catch the aroma and the fragrance of worship? That's the way that it, that it should be. And I want us to be careful when you think about that, you might think of some specific people that you know, right? There's people that we all know, and there's just kind of a, a natural disposition and a joy and exuberance that they possess that not everyone does, right? I mean, you probably have some faces running through your mind, right now, people that are just like, they're happier than, than normal, right? And I want us to not make the mistake of assuming that is what I'm talking about. Because I think God has created different people with different, you know, attitudes, different dispositions. Some people, are just, they just don't need an excuse to be happy. They just wake up in the morning with a smile on their face, and that's the way it's always been. And other people are a little more melancholy, and some people are a little more in, in the middle of, of the road. Right, And so what I'm not trying to say is, hey, go be like that really happy person that you know. No, this fragrance might look different from person to person. Just like it's one thing for a house to be filled with the fragrance of a sweet you know, perfume, and it's another thing for a house to be filled with the smell of bacon, right? Uh, They're both good smells, but, you know, a little different, right? And that's the thing. This, This aroma of worship might look different from person to person in this room, but it should, it should be there. And when we think about, well, what should it look like? And it might look different from our personalities, but there should be things that are similar to all of us. And I want to give us a few verses, even jot these references down. These might be good things to to meditate on this week. Verses to come back to this week. First one is Romans 12, 1. 
It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The one way we respond in worship is not by offering up some ointment on the feet of Jesus, it's by offering up our lives. That we as Christians live lives where the the mantra we use, which we've talked about a lot around here at this church, is it's not about me. My life is not about me. I've, I've laid it down to serve God and to serve his people. When people around you get a whiff of your life, what do they sense? Do they sense somebody who's self-absorbed and focused on themselves? Or do they get a sense of somebody that's here to serve? First and foremost, the Lord, and then anybody else that God puts in their paths. What is the aroma that your life is giving off? First Samuel 15.22 says that Samuel, when he was rebuking Saul, said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Another way our lives should give off this aroma of worship is through obedience, through doing what God says. And that's where I don't care how naturally happy your disposition is or how emotional you get during worship. If there's not obedience in your life, that doesn't mean anything. It's obedience that God looks for. And so this Tuesday, when you're tempted to give in to lust, to fully vent your anger, to hold on to bitterness, whatever it may be, one way you can show there is no treasure like Jesus is by saying, I'm going to do what Jesus says and trust him instead of giving in to temptation. That's worship. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise, to God, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Another way even to think about praise would be just thanksgiving. We offer up thanksgiving and praise to God. That's what you're going to hear if you are around us. And again, different people have different personalities that might come across differently, but when people are around you, what is the aroma they're smelling? Is it one of gratitude and thankfulness Or is it one of grumbling and complaining? What is it? If we really realize what we have in Christ, it should be gratitude, thanksgiving. We shouldn't be people grumbling about what a rotten deal we've gotten. We should be people that realize we have Jesus. We have everything we could ever need and more. We should be the people saying, who's got it better than us? Nobody, because we have Christ. And that's what people should, if they're around us, they should sense there's something different. While everyone else in the world is grumbling and complaining, these people, they're different. Or 2 Corinthians 2.14 says this, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. Another way we, we spread this aroma of worship is victory in the face of adversity. That we're always living in triumphal procession. And this might be a good one to look at the context. Because when I talk about victory in the face of adversity, uh, this passage is not talking about first world problems. (sighs) Coffee machine was broken this morning, but I'm still finding victory in Jesus. That's not what I'm talking about. This is persecution. Hey, we've taken away your job. We've taken away your home. We're threatening to take away your life, but I'm still walking in victory and confidence because I know that Jesus is worth it. 
And I know they can take away everything from me, but they can't take away Christ from me. And as long as I have that, do your worst. That's the, that's the mindset that Christians should have. And even though we haven't been doing it lately because of what's going on in our world, that's one of the reasons why we do an offering during our church service. Because we see that as an act of worship. And yes, part of it is I want to support the church so we can pay to rent the school, so the church can have a staff, so we can do events and provide services for people in our church. That, that, that should be part of it. But a big, the biggest part of it is, God, I think you're worthy. And I think your mission is important. And I want to give as an act of worship to support that. There's so many things in our lives that should give off this aroma of worship. And as we leave this passage, I hope many of you are are realizing, you know, I'm not like the religious leaders. I'm not like Judas. I know Jesus is the Messiah. He has my heart. He has my life. I want you asking, okay, if I went, if I called your spouse, if I called your best friends, if I called your coworkers this week, and I said, hey, when you get a sniff of so-and-so's life, what is it that you smell, right? And I wouldn't ask that question because they wouldn't get what I was meaning by it. They'd be like, I think he wears deodorant. No, I'm asking, what, what is the attitude that they see from you? Is it these things that we've talked about? Gratitude, obedience, just a, a servant's heart, victory no matter what is, was, is going on in your life. That's where our hearts should be if we really think that Jesus is the greatest thing if we really think there is no treasure like Jesus. And again, you look at the end, you look at some of it talks about the crowds in this passage. And one thing I want you to realize is there's not really any middle ground with Jesus. And the more the story goes on, we see, you know, throughout John, we see some people that they're kind of interested, but they've got questions. The more and more time goes on, the more and more divided they become. Where it's either I'm all in and I believe Jesus is who he says he is, or people start to turn their backs on him when they realize they're not going to get what they want. Where are you at this morning? And we want to end today by celebrating the Lord's table. as It's the first Sunday of the month and even the first Sunday of the year. We want to come to Christ. And hopefully you got one of these as you walked in this morning. If you did not, just go ahead and raise your hand and one of our awesome usher team will get it to you. Just keep your hand up high where they can see you until until they get you one. And if you're not being noticed, just get up and do some jumping jacks. That'll get their attention. Uh, but just keep your hand up. And uh, Marcus is making his way around. We got a few more. I think this side of the room, this, this side of the room. Good job. You, you guys all got it. We got a few more on this side of the room. Um, but we want to take a few moments and, and reflect. And if you're one of God's people, if you're a new creation in Christ, I want you to reflect in this moment. Hey, what is the aroma that your life is giving off? Are you giving off a fragrance of worship that that fills up your life, that fills up the places where you are? And if some of you here today, and when you hear me talking about the religious leaders, and you hear me talking about Judas, these people that there's something still in the way between them and Christ, and if you've realized that that's you, well, then I want to invite you to make today be the day that that changes. For you to say today, Jesus, there is no treasure like you. There is no idol in my life that can can compare. There's nothing that this world has to offer like Jesus. For today to be the day that you give up those other things, that you turn from your sin and, and flee from this illusion that you're in control and you put your trust in Christ. And you can even do that right now as we take this time and pray. So Stephen's gonna play and I wanna invite you all to take a few moments to reflect and then we will 
I will come up and we will take this together. Chapter 12. Lazarus wasn't supposed to be there. He wasn't supposed to be sitting at that table. If we think about the reality of this table that we come to today, none of us are supposed to be here. None of us deserve to be here. The only reason we can take this bread and take this cup is because of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. I hope we get rid of any sense of entitlement as we come to this table, and I hope that that just shows in all of our lives that there would be a fragrance from this church that fills the valley and people realize that there's something different. What's going on at Compass Bible Church? Because there's a group of people that really live like there is no treasure like Jesus. So we want to remember what he has done. So let's take this bread and take this cup and do this in remembrance of him. Let's pray together. God, we come to you. Lord, would you fill our hearts with this worship, God? Would you fill our lives with this sense? God, may people look at us and have to scratch their heads and, and even that they would look at us and say, why are these people making these choices? Why do these people think that this Jesus is so precious and so valuable? And that would cause people to, to look at Christ themselves and to see him for who he is, God. And to turn from their sin, to put their trust in him, to realize he is the savior that no one else could ever be. God, we pray for those in our community that there's still something in between them and Christ, God, that they would see nothing can compare, nothing can compete. The control we think we have is an illusion. And may we say that he is worthy. He is the name above every name. We pray this all in his name. Amen.